I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance. I'm Brian Moore and joining me in the studio today is former Scotland and Lions fly half Craig Chalmers. Later on in the show we'll be hearing from Conor O'Shea, the EPCR chairman Simon Halliday and the former Ireland second row Donald Lenehan. Plus we've got Gary Street, Brendan Atwell and Earl Crabtree all to join us to talk Super Rugby and Super League. Nigel Owens as always will join us and remember you can ask him or indeed us any questions via the hashtag full contact. Every week you can join us on Facebook Live at 6pm. Just search for Telegraph Sport and you can listen to the whole show live on the Telegraph website. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and please leave a review. On with the show, Craig, good evening. Evening, Brian. Lions here. How special is the Lions for players? Uh, it's really special. I mean, it's the pinnacle of any British rugby player's career, you know, to get selected for the Lions and get on that plane and, you know, go, you know, obviously Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, you know, to be on one of these tours is, is amazing. We were there in Australia for two months yes. as, a, as I was 20 years old at the time. Yeah, I think I, start, I got my first cap in 1989 against uh, Wales at Murrayfield and I, th- I don't think I even knew there was a tour that that year. So, <laughs> But uh, yeah, we, we sort of, after a couple of games, there, a lot of talk about it and, you know, there's been three games now the champ- in the championship this year and, uh, you know, I was talking about it and getting excited about it but as a player, you know, it's, it's nerve-wracking waiting for that that letter, as it was back in the day. Um, you got a letter? Yeah. Uh, I, I found out on um, on CFAX, <laughs> well, as it was well, back then. You say that, you say that. It was a letter that we got, but I actually was working for Scottish Power at the time, and uh, my, my, my mail came later in the morning, so I was phoning home, mum wasn't there, no letter yet. Um, I found out on... It was in BBC News and it, <laughs> in the garages in the garages of Scottish Power. I nicked, I nicked downstairs for a, for a coffee and to listen to the news and it being announced at ten o'clock. So that's how I found out. Uh, Change days nowadays. I've got a text or an email or whatever. Well, I said before that this Six Nations Championship started. Not only would it be a good one because the Lions' place is up for grabs, but I just thought after year after the World Cup, you know, settled. Sides are starting to get more settled. Players are starting to get familiar. If there's been consistency in selection tactically, games start to come together. I think that's probably right. How would you assess the quality so far? 
think it's been good. I think it's, uh, you know, I think obviously the last Lions tour, Wales had a poor start and they, they got themselves sorted out. And obviously Warren Gatlin being the coach, um, they went they went and won the championship. So the majority of the team uh, back in, you know, 2013 was was Welsh and especially in the test matches. I think it's, been, it's going to be a bit different this time. I think, uh, you know, Warren will probably be a bit disappointed about the way that the Welsh boys have been performing. Um, but Ireland have been performing pretty well. Scotland have, you know, resurgent. Uh, well, I tell you what, let's start with that because that's the, well, I say the biggest game. It, prob- it probably is in terms of the championship at, you know, the point it's at. Um, for the first, I, I can't remember a Scotland side in the last certainly 10 years, maybe maybe slightly longer, that has had as many threats outside and the creativity uh, and the scoring ability um, and the precision to take those chances as this particular side. What is that down to? A lot to do with uh, what's happening at Glasgow, mm-hmm. to be to be honest. I think uh, Giga Townsend's you know, going to Glasgow and he's created a culture and a mindset Within the players, to, to you know, he's got he's been lucky as well to get a lot of the top players, the young players signed at Glasgow, um, a lot of good overseas players for, for a while, like DTH Van de Merver, they bought into the you know his his his, his way of playing, but just uh, Dunbar, Bennett, Russell, uh, Ali Price, Pygos, the list goes on. And I think Tommy Seymour was being you know somebody who was let go by Ulster mm. because they had so many outside backs I think Glasgow's been a big thing you know and, and they play, these guys play together the majority is week in week out yeah. they won the Pro 12 a couple of years ago and you know they're not they're, you know they've, they've been consistently good year in year out um, it's that familiarity they're all about the same kind of age and they're enjoying the rugby you know they enjoy playing in the style that they're playing and you know they're getting good quick ball and any backline loves good quick ball we often go on about this the winning mentality and that there's a lot of mystique around it and actually essentially and I know this sounds trite but it is just a case of doing it because once you get the number of wins under your belt you then have the confidence when you go down in games not to panic not to chase the scoreboard not chase a clock and funnily enough you happen to play probably better than you would have done you know had you been doing all those things and then you probably win more and it and it's a it rolls together doesn't it yeah, it does, and that, I think Glasgow have you know made they made quarterfinals, uh, sorry semi-finals, playoffs uh, of the Pro 12, and then you know they got the final, lost the final, then they won the next one. They've, you know they've got better and better. They've been learning, you know, and learning, and they've they've learned from the mistakes. And quite, I, I was I was just going to say that quite often it's the reverses, it's the games you lose that teach you most, and you see what character is in the squad and the team, you know, and it's from that rather than you know, just going on and perpetually winning, that, that actually makes you search deep down and gives you that sort of edge when you come forward. Look, Scotland are coming to England, they're coming to Twickenham, and they've not won there since 83, I think. Jeez. 83, I think that's right. And I just ask, there's, there is pressure on England because, you know, they're, they're going for a grand slam, they're the only side that can do that. But I think there's pressure on Scotland because I just say this, if they're not going to win now, when are they going to win? <laughs> well, we're the we're the we're the favourites, so 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 Eddie says anyway. But uh, I think we're coming down here full of confidence, and you know the nation. Uh, I was up there at Murrayfield uh, for the Irish game and the Welsh game, 
and there's a lot of confidence. The the crowd in the crowd and in, in the in the streets in the bars afterwards. There's real confidence that we can come down to Twickenham and actually win this game, and we can, but we've got to play it twenty percent better than we played in the first two or three games. Mm-hmm. And we have. Where, the... where do you where do you see the crux of the game coming down to? <laughs> so it always starts up front. I think you know you, you, your scrum. Our scrum isn't the strongest. I thought we got away a little bit with one or two things against the Welsh. Uh, we did get a bit of a, a hiding at the scrum against the Irish. Um, so England will target that. But I think the breakdown is going to be massive. And if we can get on top of the breakdown, the first 20 minutes, and really stifle England in the way they want to play, um, get a few turnovers, um, get some good quick ball. You know, It's really important that we're getting quick ball and we get Finn Russell playing flat. If we can do that, we'll cause the English backs a lot of problems. And I think the one area they really attack in the English backline is George Ford. We've seen in previous games, his defence isn't great. And I do think we'll go down that channel with the likes of Dunbar and, and Seymour um, and, and really try and hit them. Hit them. But obviously England will be aware of that as well. I mean, f- from an English point of view, I'm struggling at the moment. The, the, the fear I have is this. I, I, I'm struggling to rate where the performances are in terms of the first three games because on the one hand you could say, look, Wales and France... Knowing England are, you know, the champions and going for a second Grand Slam, threw everything they could at them, and England absorbed that, came back, took the chances. Do you think the Ireland game was a one-off for all sorts of reasons? But in the first half, and leaving aside the rook issue, which you know was a big one, the rest of England's play was characterised by error, unforced drop passes undisciplined penalties, sloppiness, inaccuracy. And so I don't know whether, you know, England are just waiting to explode and unload a performance or actually whether teams have worked them out a little bit and they're now having to find other things. And there's a question mark about that. And I I genuinely can't answer that. And England need to do that. And they need to answer that. I think England, you know, they've won 17 games in the trial. And you've got to respect that first and foremost. Not, no. Nobody does that apart from the All Blacks. So, you know, they've got that position position because they're mentally very tough. They've found a way to win when not playing well. And all the good teams do that. I think with with this team as well, they've got a lot of injuries. You know, a lot of key guys not playing. And the one guy that we've not talked about is Rob Shaw. I think his value is being totally undervalued now because he's he's missing. Exactly. And, And, you know, for so long he was getting a stick about being a six and a half and not being a genuine open side, which he wasn't, and he was having to fill in and you know trying to do a job. But he's a top-class international forward who does all the things that a six does, all the nasty, horrible cleaning-up jobs that people don't really see that don't follow the game as much, and all the players understand that because yeah. they know exactly what he does do. And I think we've seen with him and Billy Vanipola that actually England do have cover there, but it's not like for like, you know, and uh, these two are conspicuously first choices if they are fit. Believe Vanipol, I think, played 73 minutes today, so he's fit. And him coming back in is crucial. I'm sure Eddie Jones will start him, even if he plays just 40, 50 minutes. Next week, you think? I would think so. I would put him in because, you know, if you can play nearly a full premiership game... All right, you may not last a full international game, but you're certainly fit enough to start. And why would you not start him, bearing in mind two things? 
one, the psychological flip that will have for the rest of the team. And obviously, the reverse, you know, it won't please Scotland to have Vunipol there. And, you know, Nathan Hughes is a, you know, a tremendous player, but England have not quite worked out how to use his strengths. It took a while for him to do that with Vunipola. They have done that. And it's the... When, when you've got defences who are packed and are organised and disciplined, it's the yards after the contact that really make the difference because that moves the offside line back. It makes it much more difficult for defences to reorganise. If you get stopped on the gain line, everything's flat. You have to work off, you know, slow or flat ball, and, it, and it, it's just much harder. Yeah, I mean, the, the two words, go forward. You know, mm. the go forward is massive in, in, in the game, that breaking that tackle line. And, and you know, for the half-back, just not just not just the pass and attack in the line, it's the kicking as well. Yeah. If you kick in the front foot, it makes it much easier. You know, so kicking kicking is massive in the in the, in the the test match uh, arena. And I think that's one area that England have got to improve on. They've got to be a bit more accurate. And that's one, one area they'll probably test Scotland out a little bit. Seymour, well, maybe Visser. Hog, Hog, Hogs, you know, he's getting better at ball in the air, but it's still a, a small weakness. You know, there's, there's still an area that, that can be attacked. So I think they will look at that. Well, it's probably one of his only weaknesses at the moment because he's in the <laughs> form of his life, isn't he? But there are two, just two points. You, you'll know this from fly half, but, you know, if they can just force Finn Russell to pass the ball, then they've got problems elsewhere, but they haven't got that problem. And Finn Russell is uh, the sort of player who... When he interests the defence and he fixes people, it brings alive everything else. And if England, I think England's inside defenders have to get at him and stop him running flat and stop the inside balls and whatever. Once he's passed the ball, then other people can deal with that. But to make sure he doesn't start running the game, you know, and doesn't start doing that. And secondly, with Hoggy, cannot be given time to weigh up his counter attack options. You know, they've either got to, either got to get man and ball or he's got to be put behind him so he has to turn, you know, and then everything's, you know, different. I mean, against France, England didn't kick well and they got shredded several times by the back three, but their scramble defence held up. And the thing is this, with Scotland at the moment, with the way they're putting away the chances that are given to them, that might be two or three tries and that might be, you know, a lead which England you know, can't overcome. So my point was, I want England to start with a a controlled game. Now, people misinterpret that. They think they mean slow and turgid. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is this, is not to turn ball over, not to make unforced errors like dropping the ball, you know, and not to give away undisciplined penalties. Because every time you do that, you can have had 15, 16, you can have as many phases as you like and doing well. As soon as you do one of those things, it stops everything, gives the advantage off to there. So not, not playing with ambition, but playing just more accurately. And if England do that and start well, I think Scotland will have a much different proposition. But if, I mean, you played in so many games against England and every time there was something slightly different because you, you knew that you had to create some uncertainty and something different. What do you think Scotland will do in in that respect? Can you predict that? I think no. They'll, they'll try something different. They've got to try and play as unstructured and a bit not chaotic, not chaotic, but you know, just play fast, turnovers, play with a bit of ambition, which they have been doing, obviously. But Scotland, looking at the game so far, they've at times not had that much ball. 
No, that's but even more impressive, actually. It is, and you know they're just very clinical at the moment. And if Scotland can get a bit more ball, they can they can cause a team like England you know, no no end of problems. And I think you know with Hoggy, you know England are kicking the hog, the back three, Visser, Seymour. I think if Visser starts because Maitland's back playing again today for for Saracens. So what would you do? I keep Visser in. I thought he played really well last week. Uh, probably one of the best games he played. So it's going to be a tough decision because if you know if you don't start with Visser, you you can't put me on the bench. They'll probably have Mark Bennett on the bench. So it's a it's a tough one. It's a real tough one. Um, but certainly kick to that back three, and if they're catching the ball in the full, then they're going to come back at you either running or get a good kick in. They're going to try. England have got to try and find some grass. You know. You get the ball rolling and put Hogg in a corner, put him under a bit of pressure. If they can do that, then you know that would be a massive plus for them. But if they don't, the kicking game's you know it's just so, I can't un- underestimate how how important and, it and is. And the chasing game, obviously. And the ch- and the chasing exactly. But I think the England kicking game in the last game against the Italians was very poor. A lot of kicks out in the full, you know, poor kicks. The Italians came back at them and 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 they made they made England work very very hard. But I think. Uh, I just think the game's going to be one up front and that, that breakdown area, and that's that's the one area I think that we've, or well, certainly one area I think we've got a, we've got a advantage over England. Um, you know, Hamish Watson's been outstanding for Scotland this year, and you know Ryan Wilson, he doesn't get much much mention. I thought Strauss was tremendous as well. So Strauss got injured against the French, and that's the, probably the best game I've seen him play for Scotland. He doesn't, you know, he's not stepped up to international rugby the way I thought he would, and really imposed himself the way I thought he would. But against France, that was his game against the big physical French pack, and he really stood up for me. And unfortunately, he's out injured for the for the rest of the season as well. But I think uh, John Barkley, we've got a skillful bark. John Barkley for me reminds me so much of John Jeffrey, clever back row guy who, you know. Gets in offside quite a bit, you know. He, <laughs> I was just thinking the last week. I thought John Jeffrey might he loved that offside the game that. Oh yes, he would have. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think he might appreciate that. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, uh, we're we're going to be talking uh, to Conor O'Shea, so we'll get a little bit over the uh, France Italy game. I, you know, I think Italy will, they'll have it all on to 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 beat France because France, you know, physically. You're superior, and and that still does count. But let's uh, talk a little bit about Ireland down in Cardiff. How do you see that? Well, Ireland like going to Cardiff normally. They like going down there and playing down there. I think it's you know having having Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton back together again is a big plus for them. They are very impressive, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I tell you, one player we must sort of mentioned briefly uh, before was Donnacher Ryan. And Donnacher Ryan for me is a is a real you know. One of these guys that goes unnoticed as well. You got your Heaslips, you got your Bryans, you got even your 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 grass up front. But Donnacher Ryan is such a good quality player. Does so much work around the park. Um, I think he's a key in there. But the depth in the back row, back five that Ireland have got is is is, is amazing. What do you think about Wales this year? Because a lot of people expected them, you know, Lions here as well to, you know, be better uh, than they have been. And against England for, you know. Large parts of the game they played well, but couldn't get over the line. I, I, I still, I'm still waiting for them, you know, for this transformation in them, and I can't see that happening unless they, will possibly change formations and personnel. I mean, what do you? Yeah, I think, I think they're not far away. 
I think they've got some okay. good players, good good quality players. No, I agree with that. They've yep. got a decent front row. It's not not the best in the world, but you know the second rows are pretty good. The, you know back back rows excellent. They were they outplayed the Scottish back row in the first half uh, the, the other week against uh, against Scotland. So you know they've got quality there. Tipperick, Warburton, Moriarty, um, the quiet game against Scotland. They might have Falato back uh, in, in the back row for the. What about out wide? Out wide, that, that it's that it's that. Number ten jersey everyone's talking about at the moment for Wales. Everyone's pushing for Sam Davis uh, to go into the ten slot. He got man of the match again on Friday night, I think it was Saturday against uh, against uh, Edinburgh. Does that, does that mean dropping bigger? We, we, can know, can I, you I, drop bigger? Well, or can you, you can move him? him? Can you yeah. move one? Obviously, can, 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 can you want to move him? You can move him out. I think maybe move him out one, play him twelve. But uh, you know, it's. it's it's a tough one. Jonathan Davis has played a bit better against Scotland. George North has been pretty poor. Can you drop George North? I'm not sure. Lee, you know, Liam Williams in the wing is the quality. Do you play him at fullback? I would play Liam Williams at fullback, and I'd, I'd stick, I'd stick, I'd stick with George North. I'd actually drop Lee Halfpenny maybe. <laughs> he doesn't give you that much. He's made mistakes. Uh, well, apart from kicking, but he, I mean, well, he kicks, he kicks, but he didn't want to kick the, the last week against Scotland. Mm. You know, so you know, there's decisions to make. There's a little bit of rum, rumbling about maybe a little bit discontent in the Welsh squad at the moment. So they've got to about make what? just just about the way things are going, maybe, and just the you know the uncertainty about maybe the way they're playing. Because I'm not sure if they're really they're really sure about the, this this direct physical game mm-hmm. or this wide game what they're actually doing yet and I think that Rob Howley is trying to you know progress things but it takes time you can't just change the way you play well that that is that is the point I've been making you know if they're going to start if they're going to change they have to start doing it you know now because two years out from a World Cup is is I know it sounds a long time but it's actually not when you've got the number of games you, you line up and to, to, for this to become instinctive, which it needs to be, it takes, well, it might take a whole season if you're a club, yeah. and you might not get there, so you're talking about 15, 20 fixtures, aren't you? Yeah, well, I think, you know, Jimmy Roberts is being the bench, he's come on and not done a lot, I think he's maybe, not. he's just a big, big unit, he's hard to defend against, but you know what he's going to do, I think if you have a, a, a second five, a traditional you know, Kiwi second five, where you can a ball player who can get the ball distributed because the back three have got some quality. You know, mm. they've got big quality runners there. You know, speed. You know, a bit of ability out there. So you've got to get the ball to them, mm-hmm. but they're not doing that. And and you know, what do you call the sense, Scott? Uh, Williams. Scott Williams. Scott. You know, he's he's a pretty good player, mm. but he's he's maybe not the best distributor in the world. So I think two. I think Davis at ten. Bigger at twelve, yeah. I think that that'd be the way forward for me. If I think you've got to get, you've got to take a, a punt in it, and I think Rob Howley might might do that this week. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions. Now, depending on your point of view, um, this man is responsible single-handedly for cynically killing the game of rugby to the extent to which all the laws have got to be changed now around the rook and tackle, or he's simply a coach who understood the laws and caused England a lot of problems. Now, I know where I stand. I probably know where he stands. Conor O'Shea, were you surprised at the Ferrari this caused? <laughs> yeah, to, to be honest, I'm, I, you know where I stand. And 
I was pretty irked after the first game we played against against Wales and I felt that we were really hard done by, not through the penalties we'd given away, but the fact that the, the penalties we weren't given and it was an opportunity for us when we led at half-time. And We went to England last week and we, we went with the view of having to give the players something some hope and not just saying, listen, we're going to do the same old, same old and expect a different result. And we have a lot to change, Brian, over here in Italy to, to make us competitive again. But I, I hope last week was almost a line in the sand for us and saying we've had enough and we're going to try and do things differently. But we did everything within the law. I mean, all we did was understood it. And uh, the disappointing thing for me was on 67, 68 minutes, we had a scrum at 17, 15 that got turned over and was the ultimate, the final turning point of the match. And we have to get our players to understand it's not a plucky effort that we're we're, in, we're interested in actually turning you know opportunities into wins and how do we do that and there's huge huge things to do over here but I I just from my point of view I thought it was great that rugby was being talked about uh, the way it was and you know people went and saw something different as opposed to the same the same old norm. Can you tell us how this was initiated? Who came up with it? When it was discussed and you know, okayed as an actual tactic rather than maybe we'll try this as an option? I mean, we're, we're, as, as all coaches do, you, you chew a lot of fat and talk a lot of rubbish, don't you? <laughs> and uh, Brendan just said said to me, listen, please listen to me and don't think I'm mad. And it, it had come from an offside decision. We've seen it loads. You've seen it like Nathan Hughes against Toulouse ended up getting a match-winning score and um, or setting off a match-winning score, and you saw David Pocock do it. You saw the Chiefs do it. Probably not to the extent that we did, but it was a penalty that wasn't awarded against Conor Murray that we thought was a penalty, and it was just the explanation given to us, which was an absolutely right explanation. We went, you know, why don't we do this? Because if if we just go and it's like an attack here all the time trying to do a, you know give teams a different picture. You don't do the same play. You don't do the same line out throw. You don't do the same. Um, move the whole time, do you? You have to try and vary it. So, uh, Brendan, we just talked about it and uh, we just asked the players to be open-minded and through the week, the players actually took ownership of us in terms of how we were going to do it and we tweaked it. And, um, you know, I think it's just not something you could do all the time, but it's certainly something that we can uh, introduce into our game where we feel it's right because there are weaknesses to us, but we knew those weaknesses going into the game. Hi, Connor, it's Craig Chalmers here. As a, Scot- as a Scotsman, I obviously thought it was great to see the, to see the English boys looking a bit flummoxed. Um, but you know, I I thought it was great thinking by you guys. Um, you know, it must have been quite difficult to get the guys to, you know, to get it right during the week as well. You must have spent quite a lot of time in it. Um, but I think it, you know, you got an awful lot of criticism from Eddie Eddie Jones. But I'm not sure if it was all. Um, I think it was just a bit jealous that you came up with it, and, <laughs> and maybe that he hadn't. But uh, it was certainly uh, innovative, and all these other teams that have done it in the past, like the Waikato Chiefs, they all got praise for doing it, and you got a bit of criticism yeah. for doing it. I, I found that disappointing. I thought it was very innovative, innovative, and uh, you know, I think it was you know, something that maybe you could have done, you could have maybe not done it in the second half to start off with, and then, yeah, well, and then, we're, and, we're literally. <laughs> We're literally talking about it now, you know, how we how we evolve it as a uh, as an attacking mechanism because the, the purpose of the defence is to get the ball back. And, and you yeah. hit a point, you know, I know we have, like Scottish rugby has gone through, we have some dark days to try and pull ourselves out of where we are and we have to professionalise the system and we have a lot to do over here. But there's a lot of, you know, good people and there's a lot of potential. But mentally, the players need to be given a little bit of hope. And, you know, it seems like, like you said, what, what irks me 
and, and did after the game was, you know, when we beat South Africa last November, it was a terrible South African side. But when England had beaten them for the first time in 10 years, it was a celebration. And when we do something that other teams have done, like when David Pocock does it, it's brilliant. When Italy do it, you're not allowed to do it. And, you know, I think England came along, the crowd came along expecting 70, 80. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty peeved that the match finished the way. And it's something that we have to address in terms of how we finish games. But it's going to be a slow process, but gradually... I want this. I mean, Brian and Craig, you played against tough and uncompromising Italian sides. And that's what I want us to become again. I want us mm. to become really irritating to play against. Yeah. And then what you can't coach is the bit of magic that uh, Michele Campagnaro came up with. And if you've got people like that in the team and, uh, and others to come back into it, you know, you start giving yourselves opportunities. And then the more you get those and we get the franchises more competitive, uh, we'll grow as a, as a team. And it'll be a process by the time we get to the World Cup that hopefully we're in a pool that nobody wants to play against us because everyone will expect to win, but uh, everyone will know that we're going to become a, a different sort of side. A couple of points out of this. I, I, I thought that Eddie should have reserved his ire for his players not actually knowing what the law was properly, because they should do. All pro players should know that. But out of that, how widespread do you think this will be used? Is it a one-off, or do you, do you see other sides trying to... Uh, use it sporadically or, or, or quite a lot? I, I think it's like anything. It, it, we we thought the the element of surprise might catch people if it worked. And we said to the players, like, like you, you have to, listen, if this goes wrong, it's my fault. It's not yours. We're just asking you to do it. And we'll take the, we'll take the blame if it goes pear-shaped because there are obvious weaknesses to it. So it's not something you can do the whole time but it is something that can be employed as the rules currently are and that can give you an advantage to get the ball back. So I think it does take a lot of practice. It takes a lot of discipline because I think that you'd have seen one or two instances where some of our players did because it's it's almost ingrained to compete for the ball Mm. and suddenly they create a ruck and we got pinged for being offside. So the discipline to actually tackle, to roll away, to keep the space, um, it, it almost is counter against your normal psyche of a rugby player so I just want to get over that ball but I think you start looking at rugby in a different way I don't think it'll be widespread because it it, it takes more discipline than you'd imagine and uh, rugby still rugby when I you know you have people like Simone Favaro and uh, I mentioned Michele Campagnaro or Arnold Jager they, they want to compete for the ball so we're never going to take rid of but we just went in with a give the players hope give them a game plan that we felt that if they were going out doing the same thing mentally, how would they have gone onto the pitch? But they actually went out. I was actually energised through the week because, you know, after the first 40 minutes against Wales, I was very confident the, the, the last bit didn't go well for us. And then for different reasons, the Ireland game was tough, but they're some of the experiences we're going to have to have as a team. But mm. we gave them hope and showed them a mental strength to come out and perform against Twickenham that I thought should be loaded um, because we are a team that has a long, long way to go and to grow, but um, we'll use it now sporadically and, and hopefully have that uh, toughness and that difficult to play against attitude that we want Italian sides to be uh, kind of associated with. Well, the thing is, um, even if it is used more by more teams in a more widespread way, teams now know that it's a, a potential tactic. There are, as you say, there are ways around it, provided you think them, think of them at the time and you know the laws. Then you know, then uh, counter strategy, as always, will come into play. But I was also thinking this when we were saying, well, we have to change the law to stop this. How are you going to do that? Because 
what are you going to do? Because you can't make people go into situations they don't want to go in, provided they're on site. You can't say, unless you say, well, someone has to go and compete at the tackle every time, in which case, when do you start and stop that? Because do you stop that after you count four seconds when you haven't gone in? Is it two seconds? Exactly. That, you know, you, it, the, you, they've got to be very careful with this because if you, <laughs> if you start to compromise and tinker around with laws, the law of un- unintended consequences will always 100%. come into play. Connor, what have you done? What have you done? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but Brian, like, Brian and Craig, like I, I know I read Brian's articles and stuff. Let's referee the laws first. Yeah. Yes, that would help. Yeah. applied yeah. before yes. we actually start tweaking and and doing things that just in one game you don't take a sample size of one game and say we have to rip up and bring in new things. Yes, I, I just think the, the good thing was that you, there are different ways to play the game and the game is about different shapes, different sizes. Uh, we all talk about the the ability for being you know the David to play against Goliath and. You have to have different ways of going about it. That's all that happens. So don't change a law and yeah. have this. Let's let's consistently apply the current laws. What irked me, as I said, after the Welsh game was we were 65 minutes into a match that we led at half time with a 15-2 penalty count against us, and I was looking at it going, not saying that Wales weren't better than us, but I'm saying they weren't significantly, and we were getting nothing of the law. No one said anything after that game. Poor old Italy. Um, you know, they just said, oh, 15 penalties given away. No one said, what about the ones that weren't given to them and could have changed the whole energy of the match? So to me, don't just take a sample size of one game and make change. Uh, actually just say, how, how good is it that we're actually talking about a game? I don't think people went to Twickenham thinking that there'd be so much talking points after us. And <laughs> that's what the game of rugby is about. I think uh, Eddie Jones forgot to mention they actually tried it as well. Uh, they weren't very good at it, but, yeah, times, yeah. but they, they tried it as well. So they're obviously learning a lot from you guys. But it, you know, well, I, I, Nathan, I, Nathan Hughes tried it, Craig. <laughs> Nathan Hughes tried it, and he actually he intercepted the ball against Toulouse to give Ross the win in the uh, in the Heineken Cup. So he knew exactly what he was doing. But it's uh, you know it, it has happened a few times. I, I, I think I'm, I'm with you. I don't think it happened too many times, but it's certainly something that. Uh, Teams can, you know, they can put into into function in a game that maybe they just want to ask one or two different questions of the opposition. Uh, Connor, um, it, France, big challenge because they are a huge team, still have a lot of power. Uh, how are you going to compete with that? Uh, that's the challenge for us. Is we're kind of in this process of trying to uh, trying to create a new pathway for uh, for for people in Italy and a new kind of confidence. And there's no doubt that it, you know. The, there's a mental challenge for us, but we felt, you know, pretty low in terms of our own self-esteem after the performance against Ireland in, uh, in in Rome. And we want to make sure that we put out a performance that has the intensity that we actually had. We played really good rugby in the first half against Wales. Difficult first 20 minutes, but we looked a better team at half time. We want to get that out into the pitch uh, in, in against France, but we want to make sure that, as you say, they're a very, very powerful side. They're a very heavy. Uh, big runners, big wings, so they have huge threats. But um, if we can create our own little bit of mayhem amongst them and start getting those turnovers, we'll, we'll start getting energy ourselves. For me, it's about creating energy in our team and giving it a very simple game plan to follow, uh, not trying to overcomplicate things. And I'd say looking back, we tried to overthink going into the Ireland game about things we could change. and. For the England game, we stripped things off back and we, we tried to be very traditionally Italian in terms of how we went about the game and, and we'll do the same for this. We're very simple, straightforward and, and go out and take the game to them. 
just a, a, a quick one. Um, the French have mentioned this before, and I think actually there is something in it. I don't know how much is in it, but the fact that not all international referees can speak French, even a few words, or Italian, even a few words, the necessary ones in and around the, the situations where the laws apply. Do you think that compromises you? I mean, just bugging in here, Brian, I, I, I'm trying my best to learn Italian. Some will say I don't speak English very well either, but um, I, I, uh, the, the guys understand English very well. A lot of them speak Fair it very well. Yeah. You, you, you've talked to Sergio, so I don't think so. I don't think in the modern... Uh, I struggle. I'm, I'm all right in rugby circles. I struggle probably in the external when people start talking economics in Italian or <laughs> yeah. going to the dentist. That's when I get out of my comfort zone at the moment. But the, the language of rugby is, is pretty straightforward. OK, fair enough. Good luck uh, against the French. I think you, you might need it. But that, who knows what's coming up from <laughs> your feverish mind. Cheers, oh, Connor. Good to speak to you again. Cheers. Well, interesting um, stuff from Conor Rocher. I we were chatting earlier about this, Craig. And I, I was just disappointed with the time it took England to to get to grips with that. Um, we, we'll move on because that's an issue that's uh, now, I think, being talked to death. And we've had the uh, chapter and verse from the um, originator. It's now time to speak to the former England centre, an old colleague of mine at uh, Quinn's, a distinguished bath player as well, Simon Halliday. Good, Good evening, Simon. I, I, I believe I... I should address you as the EPCR chairman as well. Is that right? That that is officially correct. Yes. <laughs> okay. As you know, and no one else I knows. Can hear Craig laughing. You've got. Sounds good, Simon. <laughs> you. I won't go through the scores of nicknames you've got, Hallers, because we'll be we here all night, and some of them play. are quite rude. But anyway, uh, England. Where do you think they are at this point? Well. I... I think they, interestingly enough, you, you've got to sort of listen to what Eddie says about, uh, well, disregard a lot of what he says, but he wants England to get better every game. And I think ironically, in this Six Nations, they probably got worse. But what they've proven is that they've got a bench which is incomparable and able to come on and finish off games that, that notionally were in the balance. So I think that's, that's all you can say so far. And, uh, you know, we await the traditional grudge fixture against Scotland for the, the performance <laughs> that we've been promised. Hallard, my question to you is, is, what do you think the best midfield is for England? Because obviously you played there, you've played in the wing, but you know your main position was in that midfield. What do you think is the best combination? Because it's all about combinations for me. It's about you know who links up with who best, and uh, who do you think is the best combination in that midfield? Yeah, I'd, I mean, I've, I've complained over the last four years about Lancaster not knowing what he wanted to pick and that perhaps the the skill and the talent wasn't there anyway. I think the difference is that, that we do have some real depth and quality now. Uh, and But he has put his hat in the ring for Ford and Farrell. I don't see that changing. And I think he's decided there isn't a 12 particularly out there. So he's just gone with Farrell, who's now improving in the position at international level. That is worst game the other week um so i think i think that's what's going to be there for a while and he's going to play around with with joseph Tio and and actually daly at 13 and i think probably for england that is that is the best um until some 12 you know pitches up that's got time to develop at club level and i don't see that so if you were picking the team for this weekend what would you go with what would you obviously ford farrell and who would you pick at 13 yeah i mean i think i think 
Joseph is in that category of not having had much chance this season and, and actually got worse international level just recently. So, I mean, I'd stay with him, but I, I just think that they ought to bring Daly through the middle a lot more because he is essentially a centre. Um, and just tell them to, you know, they haven't had front football for a while and certainly not early on in the game. So that really is, is uh, how I think they should approach it. But of course, theoretically, it plays into Scotland's hands because Scotland actually are a, a, a great team playing out wide. Howard, let's uh, just move to uh, to European, uh, the club rugby stuff. I mean, it was for, for such a long time known as the Heineken Cup and now the Champions Cup and all sorts of things. There were many critics who said didn't need to move the office, didn't need to make any of the changes and so on, all superficial. Um, I don't agree with that. What do you think the new uh, organisation has brought that is that is an improvement? Somebody asked me uh, a few months ago, you know, how do you think year one has gone? And I made the list of everything that we had to change and it, it was a very long list and, and took a risk on the final and, you know, that came off. Uh, so it, it was head down last year and it was only really the beginning of this year that we've been able to kind of put our heads up and, and say, right, you know, what are we and what, how different is this to the Heineken Cup? And, of course, the fact is it's a club-owned tournament now, whereas before it was union-owned. That is the major difference, which um, some people perhaps don't particularly appreciate. So... What this is trying to do is, you know, nothing stood still, has it? You know, the domestic tournaments, uh, Pro 12 and um, the, the Top 14, the Premiership have all got better, uh, more competitive, big games being played, destination rugby at weekends. We've just had the World Cup, and obviously Six Nations is, is, was pretty dull last year, but this year it's caught the, the mind. So we've got to find our place within that. Thank God we've got Irish and Scottish representation in the quarterfinals because... These these can be big games. I think what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve a separate tournament of excellence within club rugby across Europe. Uh, and of course, don't forget the developing nations in the third tournament. Look at the way Germany's operating at the moment as a German club in that. So it's not just about the top pieces. We're running three tournaments, and I think that's you know being realistic, finding places of excellence within pan-European club rugby um, as rugby gets better across the board. What I'm concerned about is you can see the way this has gone in football where the clubs have all the power and nearly all the money and it's never been like that uh, in rugby union. I don't think it can afford to be either. And I just wonder the more successful club tournaments become whether the balance between international rugby and club rugby will change and change for my opinion for the worse yeah that's an interesting one i think you know people people are very worried about the english and the french dominating this tournament because of money and i didn't believe it at the time and i still don't and actually if you look at the, look at what we've got now there's a really good mix and, and remember that the the irish welsh scottish and italian clubs uh or provinces are all intermingled with the union so you know the board that i chair um is high you know got very strong union representation i don't think that's going to happen but it is a risk absolutely and we need to make certain that you know the club ownership club strength does not get disproportionate because ultimately the internationals um as we all know the international rugby is the showcase for the game 
obviously Glasgow have qualified for the quarterfinals of the, the Champions Cup and you know the majority of that team is is the Scottish team as well. So I think it's going to be a massive test for the the whole the reigning reigning champions uh, Saracens when they when they meet in the uh, uh, Allianz Park in the, in a few weeks time. How, how how do you think that is obviously only two teams in Scotland um is that is that is that is that fair to have all these guys in the one team? Is well, it... you know, it's, it, obviously there's you can Edinburgh and Glasgow are obviously highly competitive, but you can argue that the resources all go into Glasgow clearly, and and Glasgow's strong pre um, pre Six Nations performance has given the Scottish team a really good base on which to build. So there's another thing that this tournament's doing. You could say the same about Ireland, actually. Uh, it is what it is. You know what the numbers are, Craig, in terms yeah. of Scottish um, representation and same with Ireland. I mean, you know, England has by far the biggest resource base along with France. So uh, it's about making, you know, keeping as big a, as good a, a level playing field as possible. That's the best way for um, Scottish representation to be to be fully exploited. And I think two franchises are the limit at the moment. I know people have talked about three, but, but are there enough players to, to populate it and make it competitive? Simon, you mentioned the importance of the tertiary tournaments uh, in club rugby. What are your views on the, well, the complete refusal to even consider um, promotion relegation from the Six Nations, you know, from the subsidiary tournaments that are there internationally? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, we obviously sit on the other side of that equation because... And our third tournament, we've encouraged, uh, you know, we've had a Russian club, as you know, in the Challenge Cup. We've got two Russian clubs, in fact, you know, um, involved. Uh, you know, with, there's a strong Spanish representation. Remember, Spain got into the Olympic Sevens. Germany, we've been encouraging a German club, and that Germany just beaten Romania. So, you know, we're right in the middle of this. And I think it's probably a reflection of the commercial position. And obviously, that's nothing to do with me, but um, the Six Nations see destination rugby and strong commercials as very important. We understand that because obviously we want our rugby to take place in stadia which are you know, fuller rather than emptier and which is going to provide returns. But at the same time, there's huge development going on underneath. And you know, we don't have a, interesting, we don't have a Georgian club in our third tournament. Reason? All the Georgian players play overseas. They don't play in Georgia. So... You know, there are these issues, and um, where would they play and how would it work? But I don't think you should shut the door ever because that's that's just um, suggesting that other teams cannot improve. After all, there was a time when Italy wasn't involved as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we will see. Um, personally, I think it's a very short-sighted thing, and I hope it changes. But anyway, good to speak to you, Simon. Thank you. Right, it's now time to speak to the former Ireland second row, captain of the Donald's Donuts, the midweek team in <laughs> 1989, which actually contributed to very significantly to that Lions series win. Uh, Donald, Ireland are going down to the Millennium Stadium. What are the real fears you have, if you have any? Well, I think, Morrow, this was a game that uh, Ireland were worried about right from the start of the championship. Um, difficult to see where Wales are at the moment. They haven't played well apart from that the, the game against England when possibly they should have won the game. Um, Ireland have a good record in the Millennium Stadium, but uh, you know you do feel Wales with their backs to the wall. They are going to create problems for Ireland. We know they're a big, strong, physical side. Uh, but the issue with them at the moment, I think they have a lot of their 
their leading players, the more experienced players, just aren't playing well. It's a question now of can they react to the... There's a lot of pressure on the Welsh players at the moment. You know what it's like. Welsh players, there's no place to hide in Cardiff or Swansea when things are going badly. Yeah. So uh, a lot depends on how they react and whether the likes of you know George North, Lee Halfpenny, these type of players if they've got a performance in them because you know they haven't really played well in the championship today. Hi Donald, how is it how, how big a factor is it to have Johnny Sexton back in the side? I mean I, I was a bit surprised that he came straight back in for Paddy Wallace um for the last game because Paddy Wallace has been playing quite well for you. Um but is, is he a key factor in the way the team everything everything that happens there? Yeah, he's huge uh, Craig. I mean to be fair to Paddy Wallace, I think he'd played in, in seven of the, the previous nine internationals yeah, going into yeah. the French game but uh, and had played well. I mean, I was in South Africa for that three-test series during the summer. He played in all three tests and, and really played well. But, you know, I think you'd appreciate for a 10, it's all about experience. The more international caps you get, the more experience you get, and it's all about the presence that you have. The, the thing with Johnny Sexton is he is Joe Schmidt's right arm he is like an extension of Schmidt on the, on the field um Johnny uh, Johnny Sexton was his go-to player when when Schmidt was the the coach of Leinster through all those successful years and the bottom line is if if Sexton is fit to play then Joe Schmidt picks him uh, I also think he has a presence uh in that Irish backline where he just dictates what happens and uh you know having um, Robbie Henshaw and Gary Ringrose, both of whom play for Leinster uh, outside him, I think it just adds far more to the back line. Uh, and also, you know, the relationship that he has with Conor Murray. They've been halfback partners now since the, the 2011 World Cup. So, you know yourself, um, you had Gary Armstrong beside you for a long time. When you have a relationship like that, things just happen automatically. And I think that offers confidence to... Uh, all the players around them. So having Sexton back is huge, uh, and I think he'll he he relishes playing in the in in Cardiff. He's had some outstanding games there. Uh, you go back to um, one of of Leinster's greatest games. They're 16 points down against Northampton in that uh, 20, 2011 Heineken Cup final, and Sexton was the guy who dragged them back into that game. So he's huge, and and I think uh, the, the timing of his return for the French game. Um, you know, has really given the whole side a boost. Yeah, the thing I like about Con- uh, about uh, Johnny Sexton the most is the way he tells people what to do. He's always organising, orchestrating, as is Conor Murray at, at, the, at scrum half. And, you know, you've got to have your half-backs being really, really vocal. And that's what those two are for me. And, yeah, no, I think you're, you're spot on there. I just want to get your, 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 uh, your take on it. Yeah, as I say, look, they're, um, it's just the... the, the the thing about them is they both they they can almost I won't say carry each other but they complement each other. Mm. Uh, Johnny Sexton is a magnificent tactical kicker, but uh, you know if if teams try and put pressure on him, then Conor Murray isn't afraid to take over that mantle. Uh, his box kicking is outstanding. Uh, his try scoring record now I, I think he's ten tries in international rugby, uh, five in his last uh, ten or twelve internationals. So he's a threat himself. Uh, you know, as a back row unit, they can't just focus on Johnny Sexton because Murray is such uh, an influential player in his own right that, um, you know, they both create time and space for each other, which is huge. Donald, it looks to me, it's a disinterested party. If I look at the front fives, I think they're fairly even in the set. I can't see one side getting too much of an edge there. 
which comes down to the two back rows now. You know, Stander and O'Brien being carrying very well in wide positions, use hands well. Then you've got Tipperick, Warburton, and, you know, they've probably, well, certainly Tipperick stood out, even when Wells haven't been playing particularly well. What's going to be the key factors to, to which side comes out, or which back row comes out on top? Uh, well, I agree with you more. I think it's it's one of the key elements of the game. I'd be interested to see... Uh, I think Rob Holy has a couple of, of major selection decisions to make during the week. Yes. Um, the one thing about this Irish side now is they've got... The, there was a time when there was an over-reliance on the likes of Sean O'Brien as a ball carrier, whereas now Stander has taken huge pressure off him. Um, you also have like the two prop forwards, Jack McGrath and Tyke Furlong, are huge carriers in their own right. So that responsibility is shared amongst the forwards. Um, I think there, there, there has been a bit of an issue with the balance in the Welsh back row. Um, you know, when they're in trouble up front, Tuperic is a, a sort of a, a top-of-the-ground, uh, outstanding pace. He's almost like an extra, an extra back, really. Um, but, you know, in terms of... I, I think Ireland, you know, you mentioned the front five and you know how important they are in terms of setting that platform for the back row. Uh, the one area I think Ireland will have an advantage there is in the scrum. Uh, like the Scottish scrum has been average in the Six Nations, and yet Wales didn't get any appreciable advantage against them. Uh, I think that is going to give the Irish back row uh, um, a bit of a lead there. I I would be surprised if Howley doesn't make, because of the physical presence of that Irish back row, I'd be surprised if he doesn't bring in Falato, and then uh, I think Moriarty has to stay. Um, so he might well have a question as to, you know, does he stay with Tipperick or, or pick Warburton? Um, mm. But I think when you look at it over the course of the 80 minutes, um, one of those, it could be Falato who stays on the bench. I think Ireland will have Peter O'Mahony. So you've got real quality coming into the game um, to supplement that back row area. Um, if, if, there is, if, if the game is... is uh, if there's a lot of ball on the deck, like Ireland really don't have an out-and-out seven, whereas you could argue Wales have two. So there are strengths and weaknesses to both of the makeups of of, of the back rows. Uh, and I think a lot will depend on the way the game develops. If it comes down to a, to a close game, do you think... I mean, you've got both good goal kickers on, on either side. And I just wonder, um, captaincy decisions, in your... Mind, do you take the points uh, if they're on offer? Obviously, uh, depending it, on the state of the game and stuff, but generally. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's an interesting one. Like Ireland, um, you go back in, in the 10 minutes um, just before half-time against France, I think Ireland turned down four kickable penalties, yeah. either to go for a scrum or the line-out. They didn't score off any of them. And that, in effect, it gave France a huge psychological boost going into the dressing room. Mm. But on the other hand, it, it took so much out of the big French forwards in terms of having to defend for that 10-minute period. I think it actually worked against them as the game went on. Um, you know yourself, it all comes down to the momentum on the day. Who You know, mm. you, you, you may have had a scrum where you feel you have an advantage, and you know, that is the time to press that advantage home. Um, you know, again, I think from a line-up perspective, uh, I think Wales have been a little bit vulnerable. So again, does Charteris come into the side? Um, you know, Toner and uh, Donica Ryan have been doing really well in that aspect for Ireland. Um, but I think a lot of sides now, they have a policy going into the game. I mean, a lot of the time, 
you know, depending on the opposition. I think the whole bonus point thing has changed the mindset of, of teams going into games. Uh, you certainly saw it with England against Italy, certainly Ireland against Italy. They didn't take any kickable penalties. Everything was take, uh, you know, kick to the corner and walk from there. Uh, whereas I think Friday night is a different type of game and that both sides would take a one-point win out of the game right now. So does that affect your mentality going into it? I think it possibly does. Uh, one word, yes or no, Ireland win. Uh, I I fancy Ireland on the premise that they start well. I mean, if you look at the three games they've played in the Championship, they were very slow out of the blocks against Scotland. Uh, Scotland were outstanding in that opening phase in Murrayfield, and I think that you know that was the foundation for their win. Likewise against France, Ireland were poor in the opening 20 minutes. Uh, France dominated that. They had a try disallowed. Um, and, and that kind of turned the game. Joe Schmidt's been, men by nature always start the game as well. If I think if Ireland start well, if they don't get sucked into the whole issue of the crowd and the whole atmosphere in, in, in Cardiff, then I think they'll win. Uh, I think their set piece is better and the halfbacks would just shade it marginally, but I think it will be a one-score game. Donald, that was a James Joyce type answer to a <laughs> one-word thing. You should be a politician. Good to speak to you again, mate. Thank you. Well, more, you know, the Irish will never they never use one word when they could use ten. Well, there you are. Um, he was always a gregarious character, but a tremendous uh, character nonetheless, Don Lennon. I think it's time now to speak to Nigel Owens. Are you there, Nigel? I'm here, Brian. How are you? Now, is it true you've never refereed a Calcutta Cup? I find that hard to believe. Is that true? Yes, that's very true. Uh, two Jeez. games I haven't really done in the sort of top tier, and that would be uh, the uh, France-South Africa fixture and Kakata Cup, which is quite strange for a Welsh referee, because Welsh referees mm. over the years tend yeah. to do quite a few with the Kakata Cup. So, um, no, I haven't done one, not yet anyway, so maybe before I finish. The only problem is when I do get it, I know it'll be good. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Well, I'll tell you what, let's clear <laughs> one thing up. Uh, no one is safe from your influence, power or authority, other because... You managed to give a yellow card to a ball boy um, in a recent fixture. What do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, bless him. Um, it was on the Leinster Scarlets game when we were 10 minutes at the end of the game. and just giving a penalty to the Scarlets. There, no there was no advantage. I went back to the spot and obviously had my back to the crowd. And then the ball boy, a pure accident, chucks the ball onto the Scarlets player who was standing next door to me. He brought it on the 15-metre line, I think. And there was a fair pass by him. And he caught me in the back of the head. Because when I turned around, he was just standing there looking absolutely gobsmacked at what he did. And he was sort of waving apologetically. So I just I just gave him the yellow card and the whole crowd cheered. And then he sort of trundled away up the touchline then out of the way to sit down. And I went as we went to the line, I went up, up to him and uh, checked he was OK and then and shook his hand. So um, I got in touch with him then afterwards. Um, he got in touch with me on, on Facebook to say he was embarrassed by what he did. And I said, uh, I said, good God, not, not to worry about it. So I'm going to send him the, my, my math jersey from, from Saturday then. So it was good. A bit, a bit of humour in a, in a press situation in the game sometimes. It's, it's nice to have. We can always sort of smile sometimes as well, even when, uh, even when you're refereeing a game. Fair enough. Uh, a question um, from a uh, listener, Steve, Stephen Arthur. What are the rules regarding playing advantage? Surely... If you butcher a three-on-one, that's advantage over. And there are two two types here, aren't there? One when you've indicated a penalty, and one from a, a you know a knock-on. Um, there are two types of advantages. There's a knock-on advantage and a penalty advantage. The knock-on advantage tends to be very uh, well, not very, but tends to be quite shorter than a penalty advantage. 
one of the most the, prin- the principal advantage is that uh, one you you don't give a team uh, a free reign and two bites of the cherry. So it's not a case of we've got advantage now. Whatever you do, if you don't score, we'll come back. That that's not the case. Um, when advantage is over, and, and there's a lot of reasons when it's over, is if there's a clear two uh, two v one and they messed it up themselves under no pressure because um, you know the pass was fine, but, they, but the winger has knocked it on, catching it over mate B. So, so there are instances where where advantage is over. And for a knock on advantage, you you tend to find that it, you you can't really put a number of phases into it because you could have a knock on advantage. You go forward five yards, you get a ruck in a phase, and the ball comes away, and the advantage is over. You could also have a knock-on advantage, and you've had three or four rucks, but you go in nowhere. You just side to side across the field, so the referee feels that you haven't had any advantage yet, and then will decide after three or four rucks whether advantage is over or not. So you can't really put a time or a number on it. It depends a lot on what happens on the field. So, for example, if you get Let's say I knock on, the ball goes into your 22, you pick the ball up and you kick it 40 yards upfield, then that's going to be advantage over. If I knock on, you pick it up in your 22, and I'm charging you down, so you've got to rush that kick, and that kick slices and goes 20 yards into touch, then that would not be advantage over because you were under undue pressure to take that advantage. Then if I give you a penalty advantage and you get the ball back from a ruck outside your 22 or inside your 22, and you kick it 50 yards upfield, um, and the ball doesn't go into touch, then that means advantage is probably not over, because if you get the penalty and kick it to touch 50 yards upfield, you, you'll get the line now. So you've got to take a lot of things in into account, really. But the, the, the principle of it, you, you don't give a side two bites of the sherry. It's not a free reign to score. Uh, but also as well, they must have a clear opportunity to have taken advantage. And if they had a clear opportunity but failed to do so by their own mistakes as a team, then advantage would, would probably be over then. Hi Nigel, it's Craig Chalmers here. How are you doing? I'm good, Craig. How are you? Are you well? Good, mate. Good, good. Did it not used to be that if after a knock-on, the advantage was two passes? And then after that, is that, is that was that the case? or was No, that... it's, no there's... There hasn't been any sort of strict rule to it, really. It could, you know, there's no time limit. There's no number of phases. You know, you may well talk to referees and they'll say, well, look, probably after two rucks, the advantage is over, or after two passes across the field, under no undue pressure advantage. So they may well take that into account, and it would be a benchmark for them, maybe. But there's there's nothing being in law that it is two passes or two rucks or two phases or five seconds or ten seconds. And there's nothing being in law um, to strict it down to that. No, it's not an easy one. It's not an easy one at all. Nigel, just one more, um, and let's try and keep this short because if we could go on all night about this, the stuff that happened in the Island game, the way in which the law was. Not exploited, but you know, played, you know, properly. Um, not, not unique. There were calls for the law to be looked at, etc., etc. But I said, it's all right saying you want to. What do you change it to? Because you can't force people to go into rooks. And if you say, even if you did, you said one person has to compete. How long do you have after a tackle before you go in and out, and you know, all sorts of other. If they were to, if they were to change it. Uh, you know how how could they do it? That's a good question, Brian. That's, and that's something I think we're going to be discussing as as, as referees. Um, maybe when we're up in London now on Wednesday for a, for our next mini camp before the the next round of the Six Nations, um, and see what what comes from that and what can be done, um, and if something needs to be done. Um, 
Now, you, the reason why there is not an off-site, what, what some people have called for, and you can't really do this, is what some people have called for is an off-site line the that goes right across the field like mm-hmm. a ruck or a mall. But they trialed that, if you remember, back in the ELVs um, yep. probably 10 years ago. I think it was now, nine or 10 years ago. But what happens then is if you have an offside ruck right, right across the field from a tackle area, so imagine you make a break out and you, you know, your, your player, your ball carrier is 50 yards upfield, is tackled by your last man defender, then everybody running back is offside and nobody at all can tackle anybody who gets that ball then yes. until they run past the offside line. So you can't implement that offside rule right across the field as you do in a ruck in a tackle area because it's, it's going to be impossible then for you to defend anything when somebody makes a, a line mm. break. So that's why that didn't work. They trialed it and it, it, it wasn't really good for the game. So um, I think there's a couple of things maybe they, they, they will look at. Maybe it could be, for example, let's say, um, let's say if you're the defending side and you're already on the your own side of the ball and a tackle happens, you can't advance past it mm-hmm. until the ball comes away from the tackle, then that may stop players sort of running up and, and stopping the pass happening. And maybe also as well, they could bring in maybe some t- something, if you are retreating, you've got to continue retreating. You can't stand still and wait for the pass to come back. You've got to make a genuine effort to go back. And as long as you go in back, like running out to the 10-meter law, for example, then the ball comes away from the tackle, then that hooks you on side. So that then will, will also allow you know, a line break-up field for a defense to um, defend that as well, even when there is a line break. So I don't know whether they look at something like that and to bring something like that in, who, who knows. But um, you, it's going to be difficult. But you, you certainly, I don't think it'll work if you bring a, an offside in right across the field like you have in a, in a ruck situation. Uh, thank you. i tell you what, in the alternative, players could just learn the laws. That would help, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> that would really help. Uh, Nigel, informative as always. Um, speak to you soon. Cheers, mate. Pleasure. All the best. And I think we're coming to talk to a World Cup winning coach. He coached the England women to their World Cup victory, and he's the current uh, Harlequins coach, Gary Street. Good evening, Gary. Good evening, Brian. Good evening, Brian. How are you? Uh, obviously, the women's Six Nations runs in parallel to the men's competition, and at the moment, you know, England and Ireland are top of the table, 14 points of one, three out of three. France and uh, Wales uh, just lost one coming thereafter. Has this tournament been better than recent ones when England's women, you know, were here, there and everywhere with their contracts with sevens? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think the, the performances haven't been perfect. And I, I know the coaches, obviously, they're well and they, they, they want to keep improving. But without doubt, the, the quality of, of the sevens players back into the 15s has made it great. I, I, it's going to be a, a game against a much improved Scotland um, next week. And then... Hopefully, a Grand Slam decider on uh, on St Patrick's Day, uh, Ireland away on a Friday night, which is going to be a a tough old game. I've been there many times. Now, th- th- that's not really the biggest topic in women's rugby in these shores at the moment, and, and the one that is is that the RFU have confirmed that ten clubs have been offered places subject to contract in a new uh, women's Super Rugby uh, domestic competition uh, from September 2017. Now, this is a big development. It's good that the RFU are putting money into it and backing it, but the teams that have been offered places, Bristol, Darlington, Waterloo, Quinns, Gloucester, Hartbury, Loughborough, Richmond, Saracens, Wasps, Worcester. No place for Lichfield, who at the moment are second in the Women's Premiership. Now, 
I don't know how, well, I do know roughly how they went about it, but are you surprised that Loughborough are not included in that? Sorry, uh, Lichfield rather, Lichfield, sorry. Lichfield, yeah. yeah. Lichfield are absolutely fantastic club. They've got eight Cohen's Internationals, a huge production line, brilliant junior section. And, um, yeah, I think it's a surprise for everybody. I think the um, the problem at the moment is for, for everybody else, it was an independent panel. Um, there was it was a huge document about minimum operations um, standards, and we don't know the strength of their bid, anybody else's bids, and, and that's the bit where everybody's still, still wondering what's going on at the moment. The overview of... Uh, made the statement of who's in, but um, yeah, it, it's unfortunate Litchfield aren't in, but it, it's, it's very difficult to work out what the criteria was set against, really. Hi, hi, hi Gary, it's Craig Chalmers here. Hi, Craig. Are you alright? Uh, obviously, I've got a vested interest in women's rugby because my sister played yeah. so many times over the years for Scotland, so it's great, it is a great to see that the women are getting uh, the chance to play in a, in a league, And um, but you know, how much, how much is this going to develop, how much is going to help the women's game in England? I think it's going to be absolutely huge. I mean, the, so the, the model is of, of sort of the, ne- the next three years, the investment from the RFU, the investment from the clubs that they've they've got put in. And so it's mi- it literally is millions of, of pounds into the, into the women's game, which um, and it's not not to play players at the moment, but it's to create an infrastructure, both of sort of medical coaching as well, obviously a big area, performance analysis, nutrition, and, and that whole support network. And I think that over the next few years, it's going to, it's going to be um, a quantum shift, really, in in the level of performance at all levels. Um, France have gone full-time professional from next year as well. And I think that sort of the, the whole emphasis on women's sport and women's rugby is, uh, is definitely on the up. And I think that the standards will just keep keep rising. And uh, I think that's good for everybody. Gary, yeah, the applicants were required to deliver against a set of minimum operating... What minimum operating standards? What, did that, what was that? What were, what were they? Uh, it was a it was a huge document, Brian. Um, it was um, based a lot around um, so that infrastructure behind. So uh, either full time or two part time coaches, um, medical staff, physios, doctors, facilities, um, the ability to um, to have a long term project about where you are, the performance analysis. So it was a it was a massive document, really wide ranging, and and I say and, and the the independent panel that carried out. Um, so I'm not sure who who was the actors on it, but I know the Sport England the people from the RFU and, and different bodies. Um, they then looked at everybody's bids that they put in against their criteria, but and then the list of names came out. And I, and I think that's that's why the shock's been really, Litchfield mm-hmm. have been really successful with, with the players they've got and saying that's absolutely a brilliant club. Um, but obviously there's something in, in the criteria long-term that, that this panel decided that, that others were, were better suited. I think the RFU seems to have gone along the panel of uh, Premier Rugby Clubs, I think, which is probably the right way because just because of the cash and the the ability to input, um, but the universities have now been including especially like Loughborough, um, but the, uh, the the total rationale, I say, uh, supposedly the, um, that we're working with the clubs that aren't in to to make sure they keep working, but that will be between the RFU and Litchfield. But so they are uh, they are one of the the big hitters at the moment in the Premiership. Well, thank you very much, Gary. Well, we didn't have a chance to put together questions for the the panel and so on, and indeed, as you say, it's difficult to find out who exactly. Uh, was on it and who made the final things but we will revisit this uh, not least because I think Lichfield deserved to have a case explained to them but uh, thanks for coming on Gary. No problem Brian, thanks a lot thanks Ray. Cheers Gary All right. Time now to go north well not just north actually that's uh, the wrong thing to say but to different codes the great game of rugby league and we've got a perennial favourite uh, to join us, Earl Crabtree, good evening Earl Good evening Paul, how are you? I'm not too bad mate um, Season started uh, well, it's a, not, 
in a strange sort of way because you're warranted to have tremendous uh, success in the World Club Challenge and now they lost again, Salford Red Devils 24-14. Yeah, that's a, it's a strange one really, but I, I'm really impressed with Salford so far. They look a really dangerous outfit this year and I think they've got a little bit more consistency, some good players and they look like they've worked hard in the off-season. So Warrington, they are disappointing though. I'm surprised after the, the big result that they had against mm. the Aussies where they, they, they came out on top and looked sensational. But we actually beat them in a friendly 12-0 and they looked pretty poor in contact, especially in that game. And Salford, quite a big physical presence. Good to see them doing quite well. A decent atmosphere by all counts as well at the stadium. Um, well, you beat them, but um, Huddersfield Giants, um, not good when you're shipping nearly 50 points to Hull at home. No, I, I was hoping you weren't going to bring this up, actually. Well, I obviously <laughs> had to. I, I mean, it's no, 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 you know it didn't work like that. Yeah, <laughs> of course, and I, I understand that. And um, the, my simple argument is uh, we weren't good enough for a start. Mm-hmm. I think we, we wasn't very smart with the ball. And uh, some people see that scoreline and think, wow, you know, we must be absolutely terrible. In this game, we weren't great. But we had 11 first-team players out of it. We only mm-hmm. just managed to scrape together 19 first-teamers without throwing in some of the real youngsters. So, I mean, I was looking at one of the sides so that we had the right side in attack. And uh, I think that oldest player was 22. And that's where, you know, when you, when you get to a stage like that, you know you've got a lot of young kids playing for you. It was men against boys. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we didn't play as well as we wanted to. We knew that it was going to be tough. But we should have been a bit smarter. And even though the young lads coming through, we expect smarter play. Dropping the ball in your own 20 for them to go and score, then doing it on the next set directly after again. You can't win games. You can't even be in games to be able to win games. Mm-hmm. Hi, Earl. It's Craig Chalmers here. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? Good, mate. Good. I'm a big NRL, a big, big rugby league fan. Um, when I go out to see my sister in Australia... We always go and watch the NRL, we watch Super League as well. But with this Vikings this weekend, was that a, a good point over at Catalan or was it a, a chance missed? I, I think it's a massive point. It's a chance missed for Catalan. I think they'll be really disappointed because they've started on fire as well. They look really good again this year and they always seem to start pretty well. But I, can, I can't stress enough how hard it is to go over to their place. It's really difficult. It's something we're not really used to. I suppose going over there and the, the travelling sort of part of it, it... it you know, you're stuck in a hotel for a couple of days. I'm not sure if they went out on the same day, but more teams are starting to do that. Now, Witness, they started poorly, obviously, against us to lose that game. But off the back of that, they, they seem to be just getting better and better. Run, Wigan really close last week, and then drawing against Catalan away. Picking up a bit of early form, but um, it, that's a massive point. You know, there won't be many teams, I wouldn't have thought, that go over there and get any points whatsoever. And Ca- Catalan as well. Catalan obviously travel every second week to, to England, so... How do they deal with it? Are they, I mean, how are their results? How do they stack up? In honestly, honestly, in the past, terrible. They are awful away from home by tradition. But in recent years, and this is the frustrating thing about the Catalan side, is that they have some, they have an influx of Australian players. Now, they obviously make them a better team, not quite as many French as we would have liked. There's a few more last year. But in the last couple of years, they seem to be getting a a bit better away from home. The problem is they had a few injuries at the back end of last season and dropped off. They look like contenders throughout the, the middle part, especially the season. Now, I'd expect them to be a bit better again this year. I think they need a bit more consistency, less injuries, but already teams are picking up massive amounts of injuries. It's quite a worry, to be honest. Uh, Wakefield, they've come close in a couple of games. They managed to get over the line 
This time, 16-12, a way win at St. Helens, but not without a little bit of controversy. Uh, Kieran Cunningham, the St. Helens coach, wasn't really happy. So look what he said. I thought the ruling of penalty trial was that it had to be guaranteed a player's going to score. My understanding, can we guarantee he's going to score it? Well, um, what was your take on that? Uh, I don't think you can guarantee he's going to score. I, I don't think the, you, you can guarantee at all because he got got near the ball, but he didn't actually grab the ball. Now, if he grabs hold of the ball and uh, it's then somehow knocked out by some, somewhere that it would deem be deemed illegal if he was being tackled before before he actually got the ball, then maybe that's a little bit different. I can't say that he would have definitely scored that try. He could have knocked it on quite easily. So it's, it is a penalty without a doubt. Yeah. And it potentially does stop him from scoring, but you can't be certain of that. So I am a little bit surprised. But I'll be honest with you, I thought Wakefield were brilliant in that game. Certainly the first half they were. I thought they, you know, they were very much the upper, had the upper hand. Yeah, they did, and I think they scored off the back of a Fafita penalty. I don't know if you saw that way. He said he yep. moved forward from the, the, the play of the ball. I thought that was ridiculous. He said he took the markers out. There was only one marker there, and he never t- he took him out. The other marker was actually at the side of the rook. The ball, when you play it back, is then in place. So you're allowed to move forward. I mean, how long are you meant to just stand still for? And it, I just found it really frustrating, like finding penalties out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that is what is frustrating me so far about the officials. They're giving far too many penalties for the little trivial things that don't actually make a difference in the game. And uh, I know they're trying to speed up, but by giving more penalties within a game does not speed up the game. Mm-hmm. It does the opposite. But Wakefield, I thought they were really good. Saints, I think Kieran Cunningham said that they needed to start better. Well, I'm surprised that they started with the main players, the main props, yeah. on the bench. So I don't know how you expect them to start better when you start with the younger kids. Anyway, that's <laughs> my opinion. But uh, obviously, what do I know? Uh, Well-coached side, uh, Castleford Tigers, been building for a while and, uh, well, 66-10 thrashing of Leeds Rhinos. I, I thought... Um, I thought they'd record a win because they're playing well. Leeds are still uh, having a few difficulties, uh, not as many as last year, but uh, that is that is a drubbing. Yeah, it's not a shock result. Um, I think Castle for Tigers, they look like genuine contenders this year. I would have said top four easily, but by looking at them, I, <laughs> I find it hard for anyone else to beat them, maybe Wigan. They're the only team I can see that can beat these at the moment. The way they play, the style of play is probably the best in Super League for me. Daryl Powell has got them playing some magnificent rugby. And I don't think any other team that... The other teams, I think, have fallen into this uh, this, this pattern of just making five drives and a kick, mm-hmm. which I, I absolutely hate, whereas Daryl Powell likes them to play. And that's how they score points. They're, they're not afraid to pass the ball and... Um, Offward, and they've got some great fast players. Greg Eden coming back as well, Michael Shenton, and then obviously Zach Hardick. His first game against Leeds, they smash him 66 10, and he gets man of the match. And I thought that was a nice story. And I think Brian McDermott might be a little bit concerned at the moment. Well, we will see. Earl, a pleasure as always. Thank you very much. Cheers for having me, guys. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions, supporting the team behind the team. Time to go to the uh, Southern Hemisphere now with our regular feature on Super Rugby. As you know, we uh, try and rotate uh, the contributors from each of the uh, nations. And this time we've got Brendan Atwell, South African journalist. Good evening, Brendan. Good evening, Brian. Now, um, 
Is it right? I think I think this is right. Nigel Yolden told me that the South Africans don't have to travel to New Zealand this time. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I don't know how much we paid to organise that, though. <laughs> it is right, then. Is it fair? I, um, no. Look, I mean... You know the whole the whole concept behind the current Super Rugby uh, fixture list and the conferences and that is really a farce. You know it's it's it doesn't pit all the teams against each other. It's it it it's confusing. It's it's too long. Mm-hmm. Full stop. You know, um, you know to have for example the Storm is playing um, the New Zealand teams last season and then this season playing up against New Zealand. New Zealanders just it doesn't make sense you know everyone needs to play everyone they need to cut it down shorten it I mean you know you've got the super rugby then you break for the international tours and then you come back all the interest is lost it's 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 really comical well look within that framework it is what it is Um, the South African team should surely take uh, the fullest possible advantage of it Um, to me I mean I know we've only been uh, We've only been going a couple of weeks, but Lions, they look the best sort of bet. It's a good win against the Waratahs. Yeah, no doubt. Look, I mean, the Lions, the Lions have uh, kick-started their 2017 campaign where they left off 2016. Um, and, you know, they are the form team from a South African perspective. The Stormers are up there as well, although, you know, they've only played the, um, from an international perspective, the uh, Jaguares. Mm-hmm. Um, but... If you take into account uh, the Hurricanes, you know, current champions, two from two, and they are top of the charts all over the place. But uh, the Lions, from a South African perspective, are the team to beat at the moment. Hi, Brendan. Craig Chalmers here. Hi there. How are you doing? There's, the, the, right. the result for me that stands out the weekend was the Sharks win at Brumbies. Is, that, is this Sharks team capable of doing something this year? or? Look, I mean, if you take into account, I mean, the Sharks, you know, I think they're their discipline let them down last week against the Reds. Um, you know, they could have picked up a win against the Reds there as well. So if the Sharks really want to make a go of it this season, they're going to need to watch their discipline. Um, they, the one thing that worries me about the Sharks is, is their pace out wide. I, I don't, that, you know, in, in the game that they played against, um, uh, against um, the Brumbies, they, they just they, they seem not to have enough pace. Um, and that's the only thing. But the Sharks, I think they could do it if they just, if they just consolidate their discipline a bit. The uh, Aguares, Aguares, however it is pronounced properly, that's probably not right. Um, they, they've struggled and I, you, you struggle to find reasons for that, given um, that essentially, you know, almost an international squad throughout is there any sign that they are going to be more competitive this year? I mean, they're still, they've recorded a couple of wins, but uh, you just wonder. The biggest, thing, the biggest thing for them is their discipline. I mean, last season they picked up eight yellow cards yes. throughout the season. They've already picked up four in their first two games. Um, you know, they, they ended with 13, game, games, uh, 13 men against the Kings. They ended with 13 men against the Stormers. I think they could have beaten the Stormers if they hadn't lost those two men. Um, at the end of the game, so that that is going to be their biggest thing is is keeping fifteen men on the field for eighty minutes. When you look, although the South African uh, sides are not going to have to face them yet, when you look at the strength of the New Zealand sides, and again, um, you know the, the Hurricanes are looking particularly strong. Can you see uh, maybe the Lions or, or the Stormers making a realistic challenge to them over the period of the whole tournament? 
Yes. Um, I, I think if if the Stormers can keep their, their, their injury list down, um, you know, they've, they've, um, they've got one or two additions to their coaching staff. Um, their, the first 40-minute showings against uh, the Bulls and the Jaguares was, was impressive, although the second half they let them come down. So I, I, I think the Stormers and, and Lions more, more than likely are, are good contenders from a South African perspective to, to be in the semifinals this year and not just the Lions. In previous um, uh, previous years, certainly last year, the people were very critical of the number of uh, South African sides. Um, is there, and saying basically there shouldn't be that many in there. Ideally, do you agree with that, or is there is there is there any prospect of them actually fulfilling, you know, that number of teams to a reasonable uh, level of competition? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Um, I, I, I said it the last time we spoke last year, there's, there's just too many franchises yeah. from a South African perspective in Super Rugby. Um, and the one thing that the South African Rugby Union has done on the domestic level is they've reduced their premiership mm-hmm. um, to back to a strength versus strength scenario. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, I think the, from a South African, uh, at least two sides uh, should be culled from from Super Rugby. I think that'll make it far more far more competitive. We're just we're just spreading our um, our talent far too thinly across the six franchises. Well, we will see how this pans out. You're right that it's confusing because I've read it and I've had loads <laughs> of people explain it to me, and I, I only just about get it. I think. Um, so uh, you'll have to come back and explain it in the latter stages. Thank you very much, Brendan. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Go well. Bye. Time now. We're nearly at the end of the show, Craig. Time goes uh, goes quickly when you're bored, doesn't it, really? Um, <laughs> the, we've got two features, uh, Lions Watch. Now, this is a very short... It's not uh, about players who we almost know will at least be on the plane. It's maybe to identify a couple of players who we might not have thought about, but you know, you think of prospects that uh, they now have prospects that didn't have. I think I'm sort of biased. I'll look at the Scottish guys who... Well, no, are... that's fair enough, because beforehand... <laughs> You know, not many people had Scottish players, yeah. you know, making I th- the squad I th- up. I think, I think uh, from Scotland, I'll pick one back and one forward. Okay. I think uh, Hamish Watson, for me, an out-and-out seven. I know he's inexperienced, but he's made a ma- massive impact. I mean, he's carried ball this tournament as well. You know, he's made big you know, big inroads. He's got to go forward. He's got a low centre of gravity. Uh, he's a strong, strong man. And, and, you know, his winning ball, he's jackaling into the ground is, is outstanding. And he's, he's had some, has some great turnovers that have basically turned the flow of the game at times, especially against the Welsh. And also Alec Dunbar at 12. I think he's, he's had the highest number of turnovers um, in the Six Nations so far as an individual, I think. And he's playing at 12. So he can carry a ball real... Visser, no, not yet. No, not yet. <laughs> he's played a great sort of 60 minutes. Um, if you can back that up at Twickenham this weekend, then we'll start talking about him. One guy we talked about maybe briefly earlier on is uh, Donnacher Ryan. I think he's maybe somebody you take on a Lions tour midweek, midweek rugby, midweek game. He's the kind of guy you need in the in the trenches for uh, like a, a Donald's Donuts kind of team <laughs> on on a, on a Wednesday or a Tuesday. Just uh, he's such a tough tough guy. Well, we will see. Um, to round the podcast off, I want to draw people's attention to the QBE Business Insurance Rugby Predictor. Now, this is the product of the QBE actuarial team that, that shows that. And basically, what they do they they number crunch and they've developed a prediction model 
that simulated the Six Nations tournament 10,000 times, 150,000 games, to calculate the likely outcome. And um, they've uh, put down here the fourth round predicted scores as being Wales 19, Ireland 24, Italy 16, France 28, and Scotland, England to be 30 points to 14 to England. Now, I can see the merit in the other ones. I can't quite see the Scotland one. Um, the probability of winning the tournament, England 71%, Ireland 25, Scotland 3, Wales, Italy and France uh, nil. Um, it will be, they've got 7 out of 9 um, results correct so far and the two Scotland victories were the surprises. Now, it's not going to be 30 points to 14, is it? It's just well, they're it. good in the last 10 years, aren't they? Yes. So, you know, Scotland won the first game against Wales in the last 10 years, two weeks ago, so or last week. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, going in the last 10 years fixtures, Scotland aren't going to be predicted to win many games. Mm-hmm. But things change, thankfully. And uh, I predicted Scotland would win the home games. If they could get a away victory, it would be massive. I thought we could win in France, but you know I think Twickenham is a is going to be a huge game for us, and it's and it's one that's going to be tight. I think it's going to be a tight one. Um, we've got to play at our very best, but it's not going to be thirty points to to fourteen. Well, um, the QBE um, predictor states any one team who gets twenty one points now they win the tournament, and interestingly, um, still uh, not a majority verdict, but. England are favourites to take the title, but not to win a Grand Slam. So that will be interesting as well. Craig, thank you very much. We've finished for tonight. Um, I tell you what, you know, when we had the reunion for the Lions a, a while ago, <laughs> it was it was such a tremendous occasion. And I remember looking round and seeing you and other people who hadn't probably met, maybe since the tour or for maybe over a decade, just chewing the fat and you know having laughs as if. It was like yesterday, and that's what the Lions is all about. Can I just end by saying you have been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance. My thanks to my co-host Craig Chalmers for joining me in the studio this week and to our producer, Abby Patterson. Next week, my co-host will be the former England number 8 and now Quinn's defence coach, Nick Easter. Remember, you can get in contact with us throughout the week via the hashtag FullContact. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Good night. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.